0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and 9 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at PinnacleHealth.org MyHeart.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In the 38 years since the nation's worst commercial nuclear accident at Three Mile Island, there has been no compelling scientific evidence that the partial meltdown and subsequent release of a small amount of radiation had any negative impact on the health of central Pennsylvanians. Until now. Last week, researchers at the Penn State College of Medicine said there may be a link between TMI and thyroid cancer. Joining us is the lead researcher into the TMI thyroid link and a professor of surgery at Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center, Dr. David Goldenberg. Dr. Goldenberg, welcome to the program.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, here's a broad question for you, Dr. Goldenberg. What did your research find?
2: Our research found that uh, thyroid cancers Uh, that we uh, looked at from the Penn State Hershey Medical Center from the late 60s through today underwent a molecular change um, in the period, the lag period, um, after the TMI accident, which may be indicative of a change from sporadic-type thyroid cancer, which is much more common, to radiation-induced thyroid cancer. Um, which is m- much less common.
1: So I, w- I want to make a couple things clear. Uh, you did not uh, clear that you didn't state that exposure to radiation from the TMI accident caused a rise in thyroid cancer.
2: That is correct. Uh, we have not established that. What we established was there was a biological effect that can be attributed to radiation In the time span that we would expect something like that to happen. We know that from uh, studies that have been done after the uh, Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombs, after uh, Chernobyl, um, and we basically mimic that type of study to see if anything, uh, if there was such an effect on the thyroid cancers in this vicinity.
1: Now, how do you do that? I mean, I I know from uh, just reading about uh, your research that uh, you looked into some of the research after Chernobyl. And Chernobyl, obviously, was a much more serious accident, much more radiation released than after the Three Mile Island accident. But talk about how you looked into, what specifically did you look at?
2: Well, after the Chernobyl accident, uh, there was a data bank created of um, tissue from surgeries that were done. And uh, in time, over time, um, researchers discovered uh, gene mutations and fusions um, which were indicative of exposure to radiation compared to patients who got the same disease not who were not exposed to radiation ever. Uh, and, you know, you have to understand that these molecular tests are did not exist in 1979 and mm-hmm. they also are developing as we speak we continue to when we do genomic research we continue to discover uh, more uh, m- molecular mutations and more gene translocations and uh, um so we're constantly learning so we we took some of these findings from the chernobyl studies and we uh, dug out uh tissue from uh, the 60s up until today, trying to get 10 per decade. Um, and then we did uh, uh, these genomic tests and molecular tests to, to see if the profile had changed.
1: Mm-hmm. And it, it may be impossible to do this without getting too far in the weeds or too technical, but what effect does radiation have on a human body?
2: Well, I can speak to um, my area of expertise. I'm a head and neck surgeon, and my area of expertise is thyroid surgery. Okay. And the thyroid gland is one of, if not the most um, sensitive gland to radiation. If you know, know, everyone knows that after a nuclear accident, they hand out these pills. Well, those pills are potassium iodide. And the reason they're given is because The thyroid gland is the only gland that takes up a large amount of iodine, and they fill it with normal iodine, with those pills, so that there's no more room for the radioactive or poisoned iodine. That's why it happens. So the thyroid gland is the prototype of the radiosensitive organ in the body, and we know that with a lag time of uh, 7 to, say, 20 years, and depending on the age of the patient, uh, the, um, the Thyroid gland undergoes uh, changes which make it more sensitive and um, uh, to the development of um, of a thyroid cancer. We also see this in young patients who have been treated for, say, a Hodgkin's disease with radiation to the neck. More of them will go ahead and develop a thyroid cancer uh, 20 years after their treatment, their childhood treatment for a cancer, than you would expect from the regular population.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get off track, but I've always wondered this question. You mentioned those iodine pills. Uh, are they effective?
2: Well, they are. They, they physically or they, they block the ability for the thyroid gland to be affected by more iodine because it has enough.
1: Uh-huh. But to a certain point. I mean, if if there's an exposure to a great amount of radiation,
2: will it make a difference? Well, now you're taking me into the weeds. I'm not a radiation (laughs) biologist.
3: Okay, all right,
1: I won't go go that that far into the weeds then. But, you know, something that uh, you mentioned, and time is very important here. Uh, You mentioned, I think it was 7 to 10 or 7 to 20, I'm not sure. But uh, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, up until this point, there have been numerous studies that concluded that there were no, no negative health impacts from the Three Mile Island accident. Um, why is your study different than, than those? And by the way, I, I think it's also, we have to point out, that you are not saying definitely that TMI is the reason for uh, the, you know, these molecular uh, mutations or changes, but it's a possibility. But why do you think that nothing has been found up until this point?
2: Well, the studies have been very different. You know, some of the studies that were done um, immediately after the accident looked at five miles from the plant and they were compiled uh, immediately following the accident. They contained about 32,000 residents, but there's, they're subject to a high level of migration. With, you know, after that study, almost 4,000 people had moved out of town within the first year. So it's very hard to do a study on a um, migrating population. Uh, The difference with our study is we took people, and this is actually one of the weaknesses of the study as well, the strength of the study is that we took thyroid cancers that were already occurred, and we put people through a rigorous vetting. We put these samples through a rigorous vetting process to make sure that they were born, bred, in the area at the time of the accident and treated here. But because of that, we also have a relatively small sample size because uh, given that and the technical problems of analyzing DNA from 40-year-old samples in some cases, um, this made it difficult for us. But we are confident that it is representative of a population that was in the area at the time of the accident, which cannot be said by many of the other studies.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to talk more about that, but uh, you mentioned the sample size. Uh, you looked at 44 people, is that correct?
2: Right. We looked at more than 44, but we could only include 44, either because uh, we were unable to vet the whereabouts too uh, 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 rigorously of at some point during the accident or the treatment, where the whereabouts the patient, and for technical difficulties with the uh the DNA from the tumor samples mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know the, and when we do research so we uh, when you do research forty four people people say that's just too small a sample compared to like some of the other uh, uh, you know studies that had thousands of people in there. You want to continue your research so that you get a bigger sample size, correct?
2: That's correct. It's our plan to attempt to find more um, more thyroid cancer samples. Uh, we're working on that right now. Um, it's, uh, it's a technical difficulty because many medical centers do not retain uh, any of their human samples for that long. Mm-hmm. And I also understand that
1: it was mostly women that were part of the, the, the study, Correct.
2: Yes, but that's totally to be expected, um, because thyroid cancer is overwhelmingly a woman's disease, uh, probably four to one at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, with actually an increase more in women now. Uh, what we did find, which was uh, supportive, is the fact that the um, thyroid cancer patients in the affected time uh, were almost eleven years younger, which also younger than younger than what would be would be expected. Okay. And that we understand that because uh not only is there a time lag with radiation exposure and thyroid cancer there 's also an age uh, co- uh, component which is important typically uh, those who are younger are more their thyroid glands are more affected by uh, exposure to radiation than older people mm-hmm.
1: You said that uh, I, I saw a quote that y- where you said that uh, Uh, You had many patients coming to you over the years who said that, uh, you know, I think this is a direct result of the Three Mile Island accident. There's really no way to tell, but what would you say to people?
2: Well, I I, I see many patients uh, uh, for thyroid cancer um, every week, and it's very common for patients to either ask the question or attribute the disease outright to Three Mile Island. Uh, it's human nature to try and look for a reason why something happened to you and w- why you got sick uh, that being said um, uh, The fact that it was put to bed and said se- and everyone says there's nothing to see here nothing happened. I find troubling
1: mm-hmm. uh, You know I, I want to go back to uh, something else that uh, you had told me before you went on the air here that uh, Pennsylvania overall has a higher rate of uh, cancer, thyroid cancers, than the rest of the country. Why is that?
2: Well, uh, the uh, first of all, thyroid cancer is one of the cancers that is uh, alarmingly on the rise in the United States, in the world overall, and we don't know the reason why. It's the incidence has tripled in the last uh, three decades. Some people attribute that to overdiagnosis, uh, which may be in part true. Uh, we published a study um, two years ago that shows that not only does the Commonwealth have the highest rate of thyroid cancer in the United States, but the incidence in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is rising faster than anywhere else in the United States. And I don't have an answer. I can tell you that our research group is um, furiously working on trying to understand w- what component is the real uh, rise in incidence, which we do believe. Maybe it's environmental. Maybe it's obesity. Um, We published a study uh, two years ago also that we found in our vicinity uh, a correlation between uh, obesity and diabetes, which is also on the rise, and thyroid cancer. But uh, you have to understand that these studies uh, take a long time. They're very expensive. Uh, I know that people want to know right now why it happened, exactly. but that's not the way yeah. science goes. Let's take a few phone calls
1: here. Michael is in Harrisburg. Michael, you're on the air.
2: Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well.
1: Hey, well one of the things I don't know if he knows or not is that, and I will say I have some experience in this, um, the principal sources of radio iodine in the environment are not nuclear power plants. In a in large part, it comes from the medical community. Uh... Because uh, iodine has been used uh, in radiotherapy, and that iodine gets into the environment because the individuals get out of the hospital, they use the bathroom, it's a long story. We can see that. We can detect that. The principal way you look at iodine around a nuclear power plant would be
4: in milk testing. And those tests were done, and it wasn't detected. But we did detect... Uh, lots of radioiodine from other sources. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, thank so, thank you very much for your call. What about that?
2: Well I you know, again, I'm not a radiation biologist. I can tell you from the studies that I read uh out of UPMC, um radioiodine uh was not, actually not tested in many of these studies. I'm not talking about milk, I'm talking about dispersion. Uh uh so i you know i, I don't kn- i know that we use radioiodine as a treatment for thyroid cancer and uh there are those who say that it has negative health effects but
1: uh. you, you you dispersion reminded me of wind and this is something that over the years since the accident at tmi uh we've heard very often but your study did take wind direction into a, in account
2: correct well we our study really uh the wind direction is over time again i'm not a radiation biologist right, right, right. but uh we only took the f- three or four counties s- directly surrounding the uh accident that's so we we did not really take any environmental other environmental uh issues uh into account nor did we go as far as the wind took us. We, you know, it was difficult to get these uh, samples, but we stuck to samples that were uh, patients who were uh, who who lived in the vicinity of the accident uh, within the, you know, Dauphin, York, uh, uh, Lancaster, mm. uh, etc.
1: Mm. Let's take another phone call from Marsha in Camp Hill. Marsha, you're on the air.
4: Thank you. I'm calling because when I was eight years old, I did receive uh, the University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital, radiation treatments. And exactly 15 years later, had metastatic thyroid cancer, and that incidence with children was being written up in Newsweek that year. And it was a result of... We were all developing cancers as a result of radi- direct radiation treatments. At that time, I was treated uh, with radiation in Harrisburg to help, uh, and surgery to get rid of the cancer. And it took uh, quite some time and additional treatments. When a three-mile island happened, I happened to be three miles away from the accident, be living there, and I called my radiologist, and he said uh, that there wasn't anything to worry about. And I disagreed based on well, that was first day. Based on the fact that there was this knowledge of how children, especially, could be affected by uh, radiation. And I think this information was out there.
1: Okay, Marsha, thank you very much for your call. Doctor?
2: We know that, uh, and I stated that uh, exposure to radiation, whether it's therapeutic, as in this uh, Marsha's phone call, or accidental, uh, can cause uh, thyroid cancer. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a known issue with children who undergo that cumulative uh cumulative dosage of of radiation can absolutely be harmful. I can't really comment as to whether uh, the added effect of uh, TMI, uh, you know, changed anything in this uh, in this ladies.
1: Mm-hmm. We only have a few more minutes. I want to thank you very much uh, for, for being with us today you know i i know that you have been asked this but the, this came out last week because your research was published uh, that three mile island may be shut down because of uh, for economic reasons and many people wonder well is the timing of this is there somehow is it somehow related
2: uh no it's not related i'm a um you know i'm, I'm a surgeon scientist this was uh Completed um, about nine months ago, and the process for publication is at the discretion of the journal that uh, that publishes it, and it came out when it came out. I wonder
1: if uh, it got more attention because of that.
2: You, you've gotten a lot of attention, haven't you? Uh, yeah, it's gotten uh, both positive and uh, negative attention. Uh, a lot of patients have reached out to me, and a lot of... Uh, uh, Nuclear researchers who not happy with this study also have reached out to me. So
1: what is the future for this?
2: Well, uh, our fu- the, the future is um, m- m- multi-pronged. Uh, pertaining to this study itself, we intend to and have contacted institutions that have, uh, may have access to similar sample cohorts to make a larger study. Uh, we also published this study, uh, uh, looking at certain mutations, like I said, there are always new mutations uh, and uh, alterations and gene fusions coming online. Uh, we intend to stay up to date on that and try and implement those on, on our samples as well to, you know, to be more accurate. Mm-hmm.
1: And again, I think it's worth repeating, and I know that you've said this, that uh you have to be very clear that you're not saying that this is directly a result of the three mile island accident, but that just to have you repeat
2: that. We're saying here that um that uh it raises the possibility that radiation released from TMI may have altered the molecular profile of thyroid cancers. Uh, in the vicinity and the population surrounding Three Mile Island. Mm -hmm. And Dr.
1: David Goldenberg, he was the lead researcher into the TMI Thyroid Link and professor of surgery at Penn State's Milton S. Hershey Medical Center. Dr. Goldenberg, thank you very much. And we'll be uh, following up, and uh, if there's further research, we'll have you on the program again. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
0: SmartTalk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. SmartTalk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org.
1: Last month, four statues of Confederate Civil War soldiers and officers were removed in New Orleans. Cities across the South have or are considering doing the same thing, with the thought in mind that monuments to the Confederacy honor a cause and men who fought for and supported slavery. There are many people, though, who say the monuments honor history and Southern heritage. This has been a controversial issue, and we'd like you to weigh in. What do you think about the Southern Monuments, or excuse me, the Confederate Monuments coming down? 1-800- 729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org, And uh, we have a full house today, distinguished panel. Joining us, Barbara Barksdale, who is president of Friends of Midland Cemetery, founder of that group, and a local historian who's been on the program several times. Ms. Barksdale, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today is Chris Quinn, supervising Supervisory Historian for Interpretation and Education at the Gettysburg National Military Park. Mr. Gwynn, welcome to the program. I'm happy to be here. And also joining us in the studio is Dr. Darrell Black, who is Executive Director of Seminary Ridge Museum in Gettysburg. Dr. Black, welcome to the program.
5: Good to be here, thanks.
1: Again, phone number is 1-800-729-7532 or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. A little bit later, we'll be joined by a Pennsylvania native, but uh, a law Scholar, who uh, now teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the law school, and uh, he has a different point of view on, on this issue as well. Barbara Barksdale, let me start with you. Um, you are African-American, so you're not only looking at this from a historian, historic point of view, but also as uh, an African-American who looks at this and says, okay, what are they honoring here? What do you think about the, the monuments coming down?
6: My thoughts are uh, the fact that the monuments at one time was placed up there because of what they represented or who they represented. The people that were all about having uh, keeping their land and keeping their property, mean slaves, uh, enslaved. So for the, the meaning to continue to go on and as a, a, a reminder of what they are all about as far as the slavery is concerned, I think for that purpose they should come down. If they were to come down, or when, for those that have come down, I think they need to go into a museum because no matter what we do, no matter what we say, we cannot change history. All we can do is try to reach out and change the hearts of the people that are saying, uh, we want these here. Th- things to be up there with these statues to be up there because they represent um, the hatred that we are expressing. So my thoughts is remove the remove them you can't remove them all and it's not like going to Gettysburg and you're gonna start ripping down some of those statues too. You can't do that but you can only go into the hearts and the minds of the people to hopefully that they will somehow change themselves and try to find that love that they need to generate for each other like we are supposed to do.
1: You told me a story uh, before the program about uh, going to Stone Mountain in Georgia. It's outside of Atlanta. Uh, I'm sure many people who are interested in history have seen uh, Stone Mountain, pictures of Stone Mountain has Robert E. Lee, I don't know if it's Stonewall Jackson, I can't remember mm-hmm. or, You know who the generals are, that the Confederate generals on there. But you said at first you looked at it and you, and you had kind of a different thought about it.
6: Well, that's because when I looked at it, I thought, oh my God, it's really beautiful. You know, it's a piece of art and I love art. So that's how I was looking at it at first, but then I started looking at the meaning of why it was up there. And obviously we can't go up there and scrape that down That's not going to happen. Although there
1: have been people who have suggested that. Oh,
6: I know they have. But, you know, again, we can't change that history. We can only make our future history to be better than what it was in the past. You know, but you can that people need to look at it as a piece of art because we cannot remove that without damage. But as far as the men that is representing. We also have to look at all the other parts of it. It was the time of the of what was dealing with in our lives at that time, in American lives. What are we going to do in the future?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Green, let me start with you, uh, or move mm-hmm. to you, I should say. So what do you think about
3: this issue? Well, I think it's an issue that really has to be dealt with by individual communities. Uh, the South is, after the, the American Civil War, is, is economically... Uh, ravaged, it's physically ravaged and you can certainly understand why white Southerners who all of a sudden have their entire social system kind of uprooted uh, once Reconstruction is over, they revert back to these these kind of bronze and granite systems of social control to keep the uh, African American population, which is you know, recently uh, freed uh, that during the, the early years of Reconstruction saw this enormous um, period of, of opportunity you have African Americans now in elected office, it's uh, it's this really uh, moment of, of real promise for the African American community in the South that once Reconstruction ends, all of a sudden is upturned. And now you see these, uh, again, these monuments that are essentially uh, a form of social control popping up all across the South. Mm-hmm.
5: Dr. Buck? Yeah, well, uh, let me back up just for a half a step, because I'm a native of Stone Mountain, Georgia. My, oh, first, my first are job, <laughs> My first job in high school was at uh, the, on the Stone Mountain Scenic Railroad. So I've seen the, a, a major transition take place over the course of my lifetime. I'm 50. I'll be 51 in uh, 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 a couple of weeks. And uh, seeing the transition that's happened at Stone Mountain and the re- Reappropriation of meaning that this going on at stone mountain is is very interesting to watch remember the, the monument 's not completed until one thousand nine hundred and seventy two uh, so it's that it's, new. It is that oh, new. Yeah. I was at the dedication of the of the monument when it was. Yeah, well, when, you yeah. Were old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It, it's, yeah. I, I, I I wasn't. I'm old I wasn't, learned, I wasn't so. at some of the earlier <laughs> dedications, but certainly at Stone Mountain. Yeah. And and it, it it is it happens at a, sp- a specific moment. There's a tremendous amount of resistance to to uh, integrating the school systems in DeKalb County and Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, it's 1979 before uh, DeKalb County, Georgia is has a a, a working. Uh, desegregation program under Brown, believe it or not, nineteen seventy nine Brown versus Education, so, you know, yeah, you know, which was nineteen fifty four. So this is, right. so it this is that law. Yes, mm-hmm. it did in DeKalb County, and so you ha- you have uh, always have to be looking at these social contexts uh, and in what communities are or, or how communities are remembering and what they're choosing to remember because there's a specific choice to finish that monument into uh, into make a Confederate Memorial Park. It was run by the Confederate Memorial Association for many many years and had a very Confederate. Uh, feel to it when I was growing up. Now that's tr- that's, that's changed as the d- demographics of, of Stone Mountain have changed. It's, a, it's an African American middle class ma- African American community, uh, and uh, you know when I was a teenager, that was where where middle class white kids went to drive around and drink beer, and and now it's 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 a it's an African American park. Mm-hmm. Um, so who who are the who are the people who are. Uh, Portrayed. It's it's Lee Jackson and Davis. Okay, I was going to say yeah.
1: I didn't know whether Davis was the third one. Yeah, or Davis not. is the third. Okay, um, and and those are the three names you hear most often uh, with, with with some of the and you know it's not just monuments, but I mean there is a move to rename streets, rename schools, yeah. rename many institutions that that have uh, have uh, are named after those three.
5: Yeah, I think that that these are these are community conversations because those were not conversations that happened in 1892. 1915, 1917, 1925. And you can look at, there's a long period that you need to be looking at when you're thinking about the erection of these monuments. They didn't happen all at once. Uh, and what are the purposes? I think Chris has pointed out very well, and, and, and you've pointed out very well, that, that these are these are, are, are forms of social control. Uh, and they're trying to push a specific narrative that quite literally whitewashes uh, uh, American history. Uh, and it takes out the, 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 the tension uh uh over reconstruction and 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 puts in place a a very proscribed Memory of the American Civil War
1: The two of you are in a unique position to see this because you work in Gettysburg You have you have people who are visiting from all over the country Mm -hmm. many people from the south And I know that the you know many people from the south when they they come to Gettysburg They want to see the Virginia monument Mm -hmm. Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. They want to see uh, their state the monument to Mm -hmm. their state And they say, this is my heritage. My ancestors fought. Now, they don't say for the cause of slavery most often. uh, But they say, you know, that you are dishonoring. You are just washing away that history of my ancestors who fought. What do you say to those people, Chris?
3: Well, I think the first thing you have to do is look at how the Gettysburg battlefield develops. So in the weeks following the battle, this is July 1863, the citizens of Gettysburg get together, and they form an organization called the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association. And their goal is to create a memorial to the Union veterans, the Union dead that fought at Gettysburg. And it's a, it's a fairly radical idea for the time because that monument is not going to be something made out of bronze or granite. It's going to be the landscape of the battlefield itself where the battle is fought. And again, remember, this is the war is still going on at this point. Mm-hmm. By 1864, they get a charter from the state of Pennsylvania to buy up acreage. And the initial conception of what is today Gettysburg National Military Park is as a Union Memorial Park. It's not a park that's going to commemorate the Confederate Army. It's not a park that's going to honor individuals like Robert E. Lee. That changes over time. By 1895, the United States government takes over uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield. And the focus goes from being a Union Memorial Park to being a battlefield that is really focused on reconciliation. And it's a reconciliation for white people uh, where you know, these two uh, you know, warring armies are now able to come back to this battlefield as as comrades, as friends, thereby showing that the country itself is slowly healing, slowly uh, coming back together. The scars of war are kind of fading into the past.
1: Let me ask you this. When you have African-American visitors to the battlefield, are there African-Americans who say, you know what, I really am not too thrilled with that Virginia monument or the Mississippi monument or, w- would you know, the southern states, the monuments to the southern states?
3: Oh, of course they are. Of course they are. Um, and the, the National Park Service has always struggled to, um, to facilitate the African-American community embracing the Gettysburg battlefield and embracing uh, kind of these American Civil War parks. But, uh, you know, I have no doubt that if I'm an African-American father... And I'm driving down South Confederate Avenue, and I see these beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful works of art to men like Robert E. Lee and James Longstreet. Uh, that's not really representative of, of, of my, uh, my experience. It's not really representative of my heritage, that we're honoring these individuals who, for the better part of four years, struggled to dissolve the United States, to perpetuate a nation that had at its kind of founding ideal, the institution of slavery.
6: When I, And I have to add something to this because of the fact that I have traveled up and down the corridor, especially of 81, and going all the way down and, and you know checking out the uh, federal lands and the, the parks and the museums and stuff like that. And I have advocated at many of these places about our black history that is, have been left out of these here places. And the reason why we have these places is because of the slavery that was here in America. And the reason why you are making money is because we are still making money off the uh, the bodies of the blacks, whether it was back then or it is now, because you're constantly talking about, you know, we have this here federal building and it's all about, you know, let's talk about, you know, Stonewall Jackson. and Let's talk about all these other wonderful people, you know, and it's all about the blacks. But so where is it in these here museums that you're adding that history? We had to wait all this time to get a family, a African American Museum in in Washington DC. It shouldn't have taken this long for that. We should have been represented from the beginning when you go down to a crater down there, you know? You yeah. know where the crater is. Pe- at
1: Petersburg, Virginia. Right. Yeah. right.
6: Yeah. Very little is mentioned in, in re- when you look at the rest of what is out there, the crater is a very small little dot in the life of history Mm -hmm. and you know and as far as like you know white people and black people when you look at me the first thing you said was i was an african-american woman right when you look at me when i tell people look at me look at me and look at what i truly am i'm not only african-american i'm also white I'm also a Native American Indian, you know, but all you see is African American because no, you're looking
1: no, at... No, let me point that out. The reason I pointed that out uh-huh. is because of the perspective that you do bring what, from... Right. Oh, I understand. Not, you know, I
6: understand that, yeah. but I'm just saying in general right, and people, I understand. you know, and uh, I want to have everybody, and I say that, I want to have everybody represented in these places because we don't even have Native Americans in, in many of these places, and Ma- Native Americans are part of that institution
1: also, and mm-hmm. they still are. Let's take some phone calls here. Mary is in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air.
4: Hi. um, I was living in the mountains of Dahlonega, Georgia uh, in 1971 and 72. And um, I was in the car with four other kids. We were seniors in high school. And one of us happened to be black. Uh, His name was Eugene. And we almost lost our lives that night um, because Eugene was with us. So erecting a Confederate statue in 1972 makes a lot of sense to me. The racism in the South was still as bad as before the Civil Rights Movement.
1: Uh, and I guess uh, Daryl, thank you very much for your call. Uh, that kind of goes back to what you were describing.
5: Yeah, the the the, the cultural context and the political contexts are um, are always important to think about when we're looking at these at these mon- any kind of these any kind of monument. Uh, they're they're more of a reflection, quite frankly, in my view, of the time in which they're erected than uh, necessarily the, the the incident or the history that they're they're necessarily referencing. Uh, the 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 ways that that uh, uh, and I mean this goes back to the beginning of the conversation the ways that these these monuments these memorializations these memories are created in a specific way to tell a very specific story the the, the National park Service is the enabling legislation that comes in eighteen ninety five uh just before the brown versus board of or excuse me the uh, Plessy versus Ferguson case just as the as 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 Jim Crow is becoming the law of the land uh the national military park program is put in place, and the le- enabling legislation that, that comes out of Congress uh, in the early 1890s uh, is is very narrow in what it uh, uh, appropriates money for, and the purpose that it establishes these military parts was to mark the military moment, to mark a very, very narrow uh, moment in time. Nothing about politics, nothing about the causes of the war. It's a part of this larger reconciliation. Uh, and you see, so let's
1: not even mention that.
5: Yeah, that's exactly what. That's what's exactly yeah. what happens. And you listen to the speeches that are given in Chattanooga in in 1895 when Chickamauga National Military Park uh, is established, and that's that's the that's the first national military park. A guy named Fernand Vandiver and uh, Henry Boynton get together at one of the reunions after the after the war, long after the wars so in the early 18 late 1880s, and they have an idea. They said, "Well, you know, there's a Gettysburg, and it's all all Union. It's all United States." Uh, and and now is a moment where we need to be thinking about bringing the the sections back together, and it's it's a very specific kind of 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 bringing back together. It's a larger political move. It's a cultural move. So I look at these things as as, as artifacts of cultural moments. So you need to think about specifically what's going on more broadly to understand the ways that those those the money for these uh, for these monuments gets uh, gets raised. Uh, and and who's on the boards that uh, that raise the money and who puts these things together and where they end up,
1: mm. uh, Barbara. As a historian, and I said in the introduction, and I know that many people are familiar with uh, this debate. When those who oppose taking down the Confederate monuments. They say, well, this is my Southern heritage. You know, as I said earlier, that you know, you're know you not honoring my ancestors who fought. maybe the cause was wrong, but they were brave. They fought. They Many of them died. As a historian, what do you say to that argument?
6: Well, you know, I've talked to quite a few people about the monuments as they were starting to take them down in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not everybody was not all people of color were for them to be taken down, mm-hmm. you know, because we're all looking at it in different ways. Right, right. And um, my thought is just I, I just say let's if they're up there because of this, the hatred, then let's take them down. But if they're up there because it is just a part of our history, we have to look at that area as being its individual museum we can't do anything about it we can also we can talk about it we can like we're doing right now have a conversation about it and try to make sure that and
5: and that's the most important thing that needs to happen now because it didn't happen in the 1880s It didn't happen in 1915 and and it's very important to have these conversations and to think through We've never really had a national reconciliation right. uh, that includes all of the voices mm-hmm. uh, that, that are involved in the issues. And this is an incredibly important time and an incredibly opp- important opportunity to have a very vital conversation in the United States.
1: But, Darrell, I'm going to point out something <laughs> you already know. This is still, in 2017, a very emotional issue. In New yes. Orleans, when those monuments were, were, were taken down, you had public works... Employees who were getting death threats yeah. mm-hmm. I mean th- that's how important it is. Let's take another phone call and then want we'll to bring in another one of our guests uh, joining us on the line right now. let's see who do we have. We have Norm in Lancaster. Norm, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, your your guest touched this on touched this uh, somewhat uh, in the beginning of the show. It does seem to be an issue of, of a debate between how is a monument displayed? Is it displayed for the public in the public? for public glorification, as opposed to taking that monument down and placing it in a museum, that changes the focus from a a public glorification of that person or of that event and moving it towards the historical perspective and in museum. I think that's kind of what the debate is here. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. You know, and... I, I'm, I'm thinking about other countries and other places where, and you know, like the, the, one of the the most evil people in history was Adolf Hitler. I doubt there are very many statues to Adolf Hitler yeah. or to the Nazis in uh, in Germany and Europe. Uh, although someone just pointed out to me that there was there's a memorial to kamikaze pilots who died. Uh, you know killing american uh, sailors and uh, you know service people the, the question i'm asking is you know even in a museum is a and i don't want to make that comparison between hitler mm. and robert e lee or anything else but there would be people who, who who maybe who would my question is where even in a museum are these things appropriate
5: Absolutely in a museum, because a museum is a place for re- reflection and contemplation and conversation and i wanted i 'm glad that you brought up the, the European uh, uh, connection because we had a, a group at the Centy Ridge Museum back in October had a group of students from the uh, the German school in Oslo Norway come over uh, and they spent some time up and down the the, the coast and, and we'd done some prep work talking about uh, uh, civil war memory. Uh, and these are seniors in high school they 're getting ready to to graduate in fact, they just graduated recently um, and and we 're out at the and, and so so we 're having this conversation um uh, out on the battlefield we 're standing next to the to the virginia memorial and this the the whole concept of the national military park is kind of these kids' heads are not quite getting around it because they don 't have any there 's not an analog in europe and they 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 continue to make the the, the a point about how How wars are how they see war being remembered in Europe, and they're talking about the ways that uh, the victims of war are are remembered, and that the, the the effects of war are remembered and they said it seems to me that, that that Americans remember the act of war rather than the results of war and I thought that was a very profound insight mm, that, that, that these is. kids made and to take that another step further, uh, so they get back to Oslo and in December they uh, spent uh, a week in Buchenwald. Uh, doing research and thinking about memorialization of of the Holocaust, and thinking about the ways that uh, um, under the under the, the you know Buchenwald is is uh, is you've got, you've got Soviet era monuments that are remembering and disremembering. Uh, particular elements of, of the Holocaust, so it's, it, there's, there's, there's a bigger conversation about historical memory that goes on with these monuments, and I think it's, a, it's particularly a valuable uh, conversation to, to have uh, in, 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 in that European and, and American context as we think about this.
1: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking uh, during this portion of the program about uh, Confederate monuments uh, coming down, whether uh, it's appropriate, whether you uh, support it, whether you think it's a good idea, maybe go to museums, uh, or is it, uh, you know, something you look at and say, well, that's that's a monument to a time when America was, uh, you know, these people, they fought for for slavery as their cause. Uh, you know, a lot of different issues to, to come into that. Uh, our guest during this portion of the program is uh, Chris Gwynn, Supervisory Historian for Interpretation and Education at the Gettysburg National Military Park. Dr. Darrell Black, Executive Director of the Seminary Ridge Museum in Gettysburg. Barbara Barksdale is President of Friends of Midland Cemetery and local historian. Been on our program many times. And joining us now is Dr. Alfred Brophy. He's the Judge John J. Parker, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Dr. Brophy, thank you very much for being with us today.
7: Delighted to be with you, Scott.
1: And I also should mention that uh, Dr. Brophy is a Pennsylvania native. He is uh, from Westchester, so uh, you have a, a kind of a different perspective on this as well. But one of your your opinions that I, I have read in, in, in your blog is that uh, you, for the most part, oppose the uh, the monuments coming down. But you do have a, there is a, a a but there too. But tell me what, your thoughts on it.
7: So, so I'm against taking monuments down because I I think that facilitates forgetting the historical context. It facilitates forgetting that, you know, in the dark years of Jim Crow segregation from the 1890s through largely the 1920s, the people who were in charge um, wanted to honor and celebrate the Confederacy. Um, I'm particularly against it at a place like Gettysburg, which I think is a living museum Um, And rather than take the monuments down and put them somewhere else in a museum where people are less likely to see them, I think we need to remember, um, leave them in place so that people can go and see um, them in their context and understand that, um, you know, I think the first Southern monument was put up around 1917. The last one, I think, wasn't put up until 1982. Chris Chris Quinn can can give you more details on that, obviously, than I can. But over that those decades, that there were people who wanted to celebrate in some way the Confederacy. Now maybe the monuments need more contextualization, um, and very possibly we need more monuments to um, other pe- to the enslaved people for whom and over whom the war was fought and the people who fought to free themselves i do think maybe you know monuments in front of courthouses should probably be taken down because we don't want to be telling african american litigants and everybody else um, that uh, you know there is some public support or recognition of the Confederacy, but I think at Gettysburg they should stay up.
1: Didn't you say? And I was—I'm trying to recall uh, that in one of your blogs that uh, you had a uh, an African American client who said outside the courthouse there was a, a Confederate I, monument.
7: And she, yeah, I said um, you know it was a rural North Carolina county, and I said. Um, you know, what do you think? Uh, you, you and your family have been here for generations. You tell me what the, we're going to face in, in the court. And she said, Al, we're going to lose. There's a Confederate monument out front. And I was like, wow, I noticed there's a Confederate monument out front because I'm obsessed with issues of monuments and race, but that this person, my client, who wasn't, so far as I could tell, particularly interested in history, um, would comment on that you know, was just so salient to me. It was like, oh, this, ki- this monument is telling a citizen that she's not going to get equal protection of the law. And I, I think th- that in a place like that, where the, the, the monument seems to be continuing to give some kind of, you know, political message, I think, it's, I think those need to be taken down. Barbara,
1: you, go on. Yeah. No, I want to bring Barbara Barksdale back in. Was there ever a, a, a place where you visited where you saw? Okay, now Confederate flags—that's that's a totally different story. Mm-hmm. But like monuments that you did not feel welcome as an African American.
6: It's not that I didn't see it. It was because of the lack of what I was seeing, and it was. There's been many places that I've been to, like I mentioned about the crater. It didn't feel like it was welcoming for me to come in and learn about the history of my people. As far as like being in front of a a courthouse or something like that. No, not for me But I have Will talk- you notice it now? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know I don't really go to courthouses Around <laughs> the country Thank God for that But I have talked to people That have seen this type of th- a situation And I have been in places You know, uh, that's not so much uh, About a mind, But like you mentioned About the flag You know, well I'm not going to go in there and eat Because first of all I don't know if what they're going to put in my food you know? <laughs> you know So I will avoid that I'm not going go to go to the back door You know, I was You know, being uh I'm like in my 60s okay and so I have been around long enough to Uh, be on the back of the bus or you know, you can't go into that bathroom or you have to, you know, go through all the different things where you have the white privilege you can go and do what you want to do when, however you want to do it. I have been raised by parents or grandparents and great-grandparents who, you know, they were domestic, even though they were very, very brilliant people, but they couldn't get that job because of their color. So I have been through that transition of life. I am the the board uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, so it's just all those things, about, as far as the monument is concerned, again, just like he just mentioned also, it is about where it's located at that will cause you to step back and say, this is for me or this is not for me.
1: Chris, you want to add something?
3: Yeah, I want to talk specifically about Gettysburg. And I think it's important to understand that the National Park Service has no plans to remove any Confederate memorials or monuments on the Gettysburg battlefield. And as was mentioned previously, the vast majority of the, the monuments and memorials on the battlefield are erected by the veterans that actually fought in the battlefield or by the War Department that initially managed the battlefield park. In the 1890s, early 1900s, they dedicate a lot of tablets on the battlefield that tell the story, as Daryl was saying, of the kind of the military engagement in very matter-of-fact language. And we also have a moratorium on new monuments on the battlefield, uh, just because, in part, uh, they tend to be today more monuments to the people putting them up and more reflective of the time they're being placed than uh, necessarily about about the battle or, or what happened in 1863. That being said, I think that the, the National Park Service is very focused right now on on bringing in multiple perspectives, and. and highlighting stories that, that speak to other aspects of this combat, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, um, for example, on Cemetery Ridge, uh, the home of Abram Bryan will be open this summer. He's a free African-American who lives in the battlefield, and there we tell his story.
1: Mm-hmm. We only have a minute or so left, and uh, we we obviously need more time. And I have a feeling that uh, there's going to be more opportunity to do that. Uh, Dr. Profi, so, you know, you started off by saying that, uh, you know, you, you don't want to see the, the monuments come down just for the sake of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, this seems to be so controversial. I mentioned, you know, the death threats in New Orleans. I mean, give me a, a, what it's like in the South. I mean, is this still an emotional issue as, that where people will threaten death? And I only have about 30 seconds left.
7: For some people it is. Um, and I think for a lot of people it is a, an issue that is um, in a lot of ways fortunately receding into the past. Um, I, you know, I thought... Um, Barbara Boxdale's comments about appealing to the better angels of our nature, the hearts and minds of people, um, is, you know, um, the, the the place that our, our energy should be focused.
1: I want to thank all of you for being with us today. I wish we had more time. We're getting a lot of emails, and I encourage our audience that if you'd like to weigh in on this, go to our website, uh, WITF.org. Again, thank you all for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're talking one segment of the program about— sinkholes.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at PinnacleHealth.org spine.